So let's go through a case. Why don't you deliver some news to me? Um, and we can be in the same specialty. Imagine that I'm a pediatrician for the moment. Well, then we would never have a visit. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, first try to imagine that. Now keep, now try harder. You got to try really hard, okay? So it's a very common issue that it, and I just to make it right, 4% of pediatricians find themselves in an at-risk group. 8% of neurosurgeons, 4% of pediatricians, 6% of OB, 2% of internists, and those numbers have been constant for 20 plus years. So it's an occupational now, hazard, meaning that if, if you practice medicine, it is possible you will be in that category. It's not unique to a specialty, and some specialties do have more frequent flyers than others, but by and large, you can point to these types of challenges in every specialty. And Jeff, the model, which is so fascinating, when you look at relative risk for litigation against specialty, those scores, <laughs> they line up perfectly because it is the marker. So if this were yours, you would have gotten a letter in the mail from me. B is the peer messenger. Yeah. The first thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna knock on your door. And again, it's your space, not mine. That is so important because you're not being called to the principal. We wanna do everything we can to minimize the chance that there is unnecessary inflammation and anything that distracts you from reflection. Jeff, did you get the letter I sent you? I did, I got it. Jeff, what'd you think? Well, I was a little surprised. I mean, on that particular day, the patient was uh, short with me. I thought I had delivered the proper and crisp diagnosis. I thought I had done exactly what I was supposed to do and I showed them the door. So candidly, I'm, I'm shocked that this patient is unhappy with the content of what I delivered to them. I, I, I do admit I, you know, may not have been the nicest person on the planet, but I was running late that day. And um, I, as you can well imagine, we're seeing, you know, 50 plus people any given day. We're short staffed. Um, but by and large, I was surprised. Jeff, and this is exactly why I wanted to come by and sit with you today. And, and let me just tell you first, you, if I can say this honestly, you are an incredibly important member of this team. Thank you. And because this is important, it's why I wanted to come and sit and show you some additional information that may be helpful to you. Again, as the letter said, this is an initiative that is, uh, uh, being done across this group. Um, it's valued given uh, the experience of others and other institutions who have found this helpful, and I hope you will as well. Now, Jeff, one of the things that we do know is that patients are good observers. Uh, their eyes and ears tell them a lot about the practice of medicine, but I want to emphasize again, some of their observations are based on things that they may observe about you and me. Others are about our practice. Mm -hmm. So I brought you today, not only some information, but some stories and some comparative data. And specifically now we have comparative data 
to show where you stand among all physicians uh, in our local group, but specifically where you reside as a neurosurgeon. And then uh, I also have brought you some national US curves that will show you where you reside in 100,000 physicians, where you reside among uh, 1,500 neurosurgeons. We find that this sometimes is helpful as you think about the complaints that appear to be associated with your practice. Now, you know I'm the busiest person in the department here, and you also know that um, I take on the most difficult and challenging cases that my colleagues won't take. That's got to count for something. And Jeff, you know, it is exactly for those reasons that I want to bring these data to you because you are so valuable and you do take care of complex patients. You don't have time to be wasting uh, by unnecessary litigation or other issues that sometimes distract us from the patient. So what my hope is, is that you will look at this information and let it help you think about what things may occur within your practice that may reduce wasted time. Now, Jeff, let me also say that uh, in the original studies that looked at RVU production as a potential predictor of risk, mm -hmm. there is no question that once someone gets above the 80, 85th percentile of RVU production for their discipline, that their claims experience and risk does go up. That said, it is also important to let you know that that's why comparative data is so important because the vast majority of neurosurgeons who are high RVU producers as well seem to avoid litigation and other patient complaints. So it may be the productivity. There may be other factors associated with that, but I trust you to get in that and think about that. And the good news is that lots and lots of neurosurgeons with lots of RVU production can still do that safely without litigation risk. And that's why I'm bringing these data to you. All right, I thank you for coming by. I promise to look at it. I can't say I promise more than that right now, but I promise to look at it and we can speak again. Uh, Jeff, I really appreciate your time. You're an incredibly important member of this team. Reminds you again that this is an ongoing process that nationally better than 83% of individuals that get these data delivered to them respond. And I trust this practice will be right in the middle of that group. Now, if in your review, you identify some other practice related issues, you know that there are resources within this group that may assist with things that you think may be creating a challenge, but I trust you to do that. You know, we're gonna back out of this vignette and discuss it because there are a couple of observations I wanna make. First, it was non-adversarial. I didn't feel like you were trying to ram an agenda down my throat. Uh, you came with some data, you came with empathy. I thought, I think you were able to understand the position that I was in. And I didn't even hear you being critical to the type of practice I have. The second point I wanna make is that you didn't necessarily conclude that I need to back off in terms of the amount of labor, the amount of volume, the amount of money that I'm making, meaning that they weren't necessarily linked together. There was a correlation, but they there wasn't necessarily a causation between those two, if that makes sense. Those were at least the two surface observations uh, that I made. So why don't you 
why don't you um, disabuse me of those observations or correct me? With no, that. Jeff, you're teaching the course. Because what we've not done, and this is shame on us as a profession. When I trained at charity, I didn't learn about what it really means to be a professional at the time. It isn't sitting around thinking about lofty thoughts. It's about creating an operational plan for me personally to reflect on my practice. You and I both know in the practice of medicine or any other profession when things go well and when they don't. And when they don't go as we would intend, the professional pauses and self-reflects. What might I have done? They don't spend all their time with dismissal, deflection, and distraction. Yes, one of the two suits that I got was a child that I never laid eyes on. I didn't feel that that was fair. Now, in retrospect, I saw things that might have been done. But yes, I will never take away our ability to be angry or unhappy, to dismiss or deflect or distract. But at some moment, I've got to pause and say, what might I do differently? And so when we start fighting, it reduces the probability that the recipient will be reflective because once they start down that pathway, it's powerful and they can continue to deliver big RVUs or do other things. They just start paying attention to what do I do to reduce unnecessary inflammation in this practice. Now, the other issue, Jeff, that is just such a problem, and we have to deal with this in the training, and the training for the peer messengers is very serious, and it's three to five hours, and it gets regularly reinforced. You wanna teach the messenger. You can't fix your colleague. You can't be disrespectful of your colleague. If you can't go in and have a professional conversation with your colleague, you're not the right messenger. So all of that is important to maximize the chance that at this level, we get right response. Now, 5% of these interactions are really ugly. So let's not pretend that when you knock on the door and you model this kind of behavior, it's all gonna go well. That's not true but I want the messenger to be equipped and I want the messenger to understand. And we will not work with any institution or group where senior leadership will not go to the messengers and say, we have your back. You get um, some of the data that you get or much of the data are from patients. That's part of the giant bucket of how doctors interact with patients, namely unsolicited patient feedback or typically complaints. I mean, more people are gonna complain if it takes time to do it, more people are gonna complain to deliver praise because we're, people are busy. And so they will take the time um, if they see a problem. You also have a parallel database related to employee <laughs> complaints. And that's probably a different universe, but they, almost certainly live together and they, they almost certainly track with one another. Why don't you talk a bit about that? Jeff, it's fascinating. So we started the work with the patient advocacy reporting system, the patient complaints. We built that database. We published papers with discipline specific curves. 
So we've got a neurosurgery curve. We've got a thoracic surgery curve. We've got a cardiology curve. We got curves for everybody. And the process worked really well. We started out by providing complaints back individual, one at a time, not with a peer messenger, but with an electronic message. The awareness interventions like you and I just did, we sent the peer messengers. Mm -hmm. But I didn't get into dealing with observations by fellow team members until the last 10 years. Because frankly, we anticipated there might be a whole lot more friction going on when you start taking the observations of coworkers. But we did because they are also important observers, nurses, pharmacists, fellow physicians also see things. When we started this work at Vanderbilt, we had almost no staff reports ever. Although I know that Adele had a great right to have reported me for my snippy little behavior when I was unhappy that my system wouldn't work. The good news is that in good healthy units, people provide feedback directly. And that's our goal. We always want individuals to feel empowered that they share back directly. But there are circumstances, hierarchy, fear, some humans just don't feel comfortable. Sometimes it's not right to stop a surgeon within an OR related to a certain issue. So I want team members to be feel free to go report. Now, we began to get those data and we looked at them and we said, gosh, these themes are very similar. There may be more sophisticated medical language in these reports, but they're about the same issues that patients and families are reporting. And so, we began just to deliver them, but we backed up a stage and we sent peers out to deliver the individual reports. Training, same training. We're going to deal with the one report using something that we refer to as a cup of coffee. So, Jeff, it's the same awareness intervention you and I just went through, but based upon a single report. But the peers' philosophy is the same. I'm coming to your office. Jeff got a report. Mm -hmm. This report does not seem consistent with what we aspire to or who I know you to be. I know, Jeff, there are two sides of this. All I'm asking you to do is reflect on, gosh, if this circumstance occurred again, what might be done differently? There may not be anything at all. You're a valued member of this team. Have a great day. These conversations are three minutes. We get 98% of all of these reports delivered within 48 hours. So unlike many institutions that will get reports by fellow team members, with one exception, I'll come back and talk about that, but for 97.5% of the reports, we don't investigate them. What a waste of time. How much time, energy, and resources organizations spend trying to find the truth when I don't want you to know what the truth is. I simply want you to reflect on this disturbance, Jeff, and think about it was, was there anything you might have done differently? And if we can get to that level only, we're getting the same 83% response rate by the recipients because they don't happen again, because we're not fighting. This is not the truth. But when I send a team from the medical center to investigate this report, 
And I now am coming and delivering to you, Jeff, a report that's been investigated. You, by definition, have to defend or are more likely to, and that's a failure. And it may take six weeks or six months to get that report. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, much less what the interact, particularly in a high stress environment. So to make it timely and relevant, it seems like getting it out the door and into the into the doctor's brain would be much more important for most situations. I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule, but for most situations, just letting them know about it. Now, are these reports um, typically associated with a name? Are they anonymous, all of the above? Well, it's all of the above, but one of the patterns that we find in every institution we work with is that when we walk in the door and they're beginning to assess the readiness of this organization, to roll in this feedback program, this program in support of professionalism, we find that there are large numbers of anonymous reports. What do you think happens? Those anonymous reports, the, the report numbers go way up for a while and then stabilize, but people trust that they can report with their name. You must continue to give people an opportunity to report anonymously, but the percentage goes way down. The reports go up as people feel I have, I feel safe reporting and when I understand the linkage. And this is the importance of the two studies. We had done lots of studies linking the patient complaints to claims experience. Mm -hmm. But over the last three years, we published three papers. We have another one being reviewed now, four, in which we have now linked these observations of disrespect, because that's what they are, to outcomes in the surgical theater. And I'm sorry, but we looked at patient complaints linked to outcomes of surgical care. We looked at staff reports. We now are looking at trauma teams. We've looked at all of the measures in the National Surgical Quality Indicator Project, NISQIP, to look at everything that's measured. And if I take surgeons that never get a staff report, if I take surgeons that get more than their fair share and I take an intermediate group, these docs that get more than their fair share, the patients that see them are 25% more likely to get a surgical site infection. They are 25% more likely to have to be readmitted to an ICU or reintubated. They're more likely to get sepsis or pneumonia or a urinary tract infection, every single measure. But how can that be? These are shocking numbers, no pun intended. I mean, 20, I mean, typically when we're talking about a difference, you're talking about single digit, single digit differences. Here you're talking about, you know, 25% more. Keep going, carry on. And, to, and, and Jeff, to do these studies required us to be able to put thousands of cases together. And so that's been the great value of, do, of creating a national research collaborative so that we can pull data from everywhere looking at the same measures. But the question is, how does it occur? It goes back to the issue of teamwork. I trust and have great belief that most of our physician colleagues have strong cognitive and technical competence. Mm -hmm. It's assumed. It's assumed it that assumed. they are, have decent judgment and they're adept technically. And when our research team has gone in to look at medical records, we find that. 
but where the problem occurs. Think about the last time, Jeff, somebody was rude to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And think about when they were rude to you and you are a partner in care delivery or a surgical circulator. You're the anesthesiologist. You, I don't care. But you're in that role and now you make an observation about something that bothers you. Are you going to share that with no, yeah, I'm not going to share up. that concern with me. What's the point? I'll just get beaten up once again. I mean, I think the tendency, particularly in a hierarchical organization, is that the reward for delivering uncomfortable news is getting punched in the face. That's um, exactly right. And yeah. you're going to wait just a little longer until it's more obvious because there's risk taking risk. And we want in our teams, team members that are willing to take a risk, which means, Jeff, I'm concerned about X. Straightforward statement, I may be wrong. I'm giving you, in the role you have, an opportunity to respond. And what we find is that if you look at what goes wrong in a team, there are two great studies, one by Katz, by our colleagues at Mount Sinai, one by Rishkin, who's a pediatrician who looked at how well neonatal teams responded to a, an emergency. And what both of them found is that what gets impaired is the willingness of people to speak up. They will not ask for help and their vigilance goes to heck because they're more worried about when you're going to take my head off than what's going on within this surgical theater and my area of responsibility. You know, the surgical theater is a high stress environment naturally. And the benefit of having a team that performs well, where everybody respects one another and they're all valuable and everybody knows it is that when the crap hits the fan and the surgeon spouts off, as I have done in the past, but at the end, I at the end, I will go to that individual who is on the receiving end of my nastiness and say, look, you know, this is a high stress environment. You generally perform above average. In fact, you're you are spectacular. Um, I was just stressed out. I'm sorry for what happened. It, this is not a reflection of who you are. You are someone that matters a lot to me. Um, I hope you give me a pass here. And what's interesting is that if if the person already feels respected, you generally don't even need to do that. I mean, it's 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 superfluous. It's it's generally unnecessary because they've you've already got the emotional comfort with each other. They've got thick skin. You've performed together as a team. Everybody knows it's a stressful environment. And this case was particularly stressful, but it's probably still a good idea to make nice after the case is over. Jeff, this is Adele taught me the same thing. I mean, I went to Adele after we got through having to uh, uh, get this uh, child taken care of. Uh, And I apologized to her and she says, look, we do this for each other. That's the feedback she needed. It was an opportunity for me to reflect. She now knows that I get it. I stub my toe. And one of the things we get accused of at times, well, I can't be perfect. I don't want you to be perfect. 
you're a human. I want you to bring your strengths and ability to the bedside. But what I want you to do is that you're surrounded by other humans that occasionally you will cut some slack for when they're not having a good day and that you will affirm them and you do it in advance because the time to make right in a relationship is not in the middle of the crisis. The two of us had great mentors who were almost certainly unaware that they were being our mentors. So I was, as a resident, I was moonlighting. We were not supposed to moonlight. I was working to make extra money in Tomball, Texas, about 30 miles north of uh, Baylor College of Medicine. And it was a general ER, this before you could be board certified in emergency medicine. And I had so many hours, I probably could have been grandfathered in for board certification to be an emergency physician. But I still remember this one senior nurse in the ER. She was probably 150 pounds overweight, smoked three packs a day, and had been there for 30 plus years. Extremely bright, um, could see could make a diagnosis a mile away. So a patient came in with severe asthma, um, struggling to breathe, and she says, "You're gonna, I'm gonna bring out the intubation tray just in case, because I think in the next five minutes, I, I honestly believe you're gonna need to do it. And then I said, of course, in my smart ass way, you're really gonna teach me something? I mean, let's give a breathing treatment. She just looked down at her wrist and said, 445, 444, 443. And wouldn't you know it, she was right and I was wrong. And this patient unfortunately needed to be intubated. Now she knew, she had a little piece of information that I didn't have is that this patient had been in the ER previously. So she knew just you know how sick this patient can get pretty quickly. But what I learned was that she had my back. She essentially had my back. And I also knew that when I was there throughout the night, if she called, it was because it was important and I needed to show up. I would never get any calls for, you know, somebody's constipated or they can't, well, you know, some type of minor situation. She would triage appropriately and I was always in her thoughts. All she asked, and she didn't demand it, she just asked that I just treat her with respect. Let, she just wanted to know that I knew she was seasoned she was wise and had something to teach this little jerk. And um, I picked up on that pretty quickly. And while I can't say I got a lot of sleep as a resident or you know, during my career, I can say that I probably slept more than a number of my colleagues who were on the receiving end of passive aggressive calls at three in the morning saying, you know, I just want you to be aware that your patient has another bowel movement in three days and go, it's three in the morning. I said, yeah, but doctor, we just thought you'd want to know. That doesn't happen spontaneously. That happens as a, as a dig. It is feedback. It's payback. And it's payback for being a jerk. Um, and the simplest way to fix that problem is treat them nicely, treat them with respect. If they're really incompetent, they shouldn't be part of your team. But competence and, and a technical uh, competence and and judgment should be assumed. If that's a incorrect assumption, then start with foundational basics and fix that problem. You know, Jeff, one of the things that I've been so encouraged with, we started this work, physicians first and senior physicians first. And we did this because so often innovation around dealing with other humans is we affect everybody else 
we leave the physicians alone. We took that on directly. We demonstrated that it worked. The reduction in claims experience has been staggering. We then had our advanced practice professionals knock on our door and say, why are we not doing this as well? And my response is, what a great idea. And we now have finished uh, first pilot uh, with three very large institutions nationally for bedside nursing. And gosh, the same distribution curves we see are the same because humans are humans. And mm -hmm. this is how we ought to treat each other. There's a small subset of nurses, of advanced practice professionals, of learners, of senior physicians who need to be made aware that they are standing out in a wrong way. Most do. And for the small percentage that won't, we have responsibility to take action because at the end of the day, that's a safety risk. And that data, those those data are very clear. So with the handful of minutes left and the clock is ticking, I, I hate to end on a bummer, but tell us about the people that do not get the memo, whereas we're just passing on the, the message, giving them the data is inadequate to get a change in behavior. What happens to the repeat offender that that just will not uh, comply with um, being a decent person? So Jeff, we've learned a lot and we are learning constantly. And one other thing I wanna just share that, that's important is that the PARS program with patient complaints, the CORS program with coworker observations, contrary to my hypothesis, is that we ultimately found that there's only a six to 10% overlap in those physicians, meaning that only 10% of those that we identify get both high patient complaints and high staff complaints. Interesting. Most do not, which was contrary to our hypothesis. But the more we think about it, we all know physicians that are awesome with staff and not so nice with patients and families and others that are really protective, nice patients and families and are heck on wheels to the staff. Now, we've been tracking now and have over 90,000 physicians that we've tracked for at least five years since intervention. And the question that we ask ourselves is how many of them don't respond to awareness and what can we do? So if we look at 94,000, we know that we've identified 2,400 that had to get the awareness intervention, just like you and I talked about. Right. But of that 2,400, only 300, only 300 go on to need a written plan. And let me tell you, we don't hesitate to provide a written intervention plan when someone has been made aware by a peer and made aware several times by a peer. And then in that circumstance, if they wind up falling into the 0.3% of docs that don't respond, they get a written plan that takes into account all of the data that I have about this physician. And still 60% of them respond at that rate, which is the goal. What we learned is that of our experience now, we have just over 100 that have not or will not respond. And of that group, we've had four that have had evidence of a CNS lesion not otherwise suspected. One of the things that we're doing now with our natural language processing is we've identified 24 of those physicians now that have evidence of 
early cognitive dysfunction. And it's amazing to me how often organizations will not see, but if you use families, language, and descriptions of the kinds of behavior that they are following, we know they're losing cognitive fu uh, function. They're not able to use the technology. They lose boundaries. There are lots of things that say, medical group, you need to consider this as a possibility. What, what about substance that, abuse, mental illness? Do you see those in that bucket too? You, you do. They often get identified when we do a good intervention under authority. So remember when you don't respond to awareness, you go to the leader. The leader at that point often identifies those issues and in an organization that's committed to their colleagues, will direct those individuals to the mental and physical health assessments they need. And we don't blink about that because if I have somebody at that point, we need to know because if I am beginning to have cognitive dysfunction, mm -hmm. doesn't a professional really want their fellow professional to get the help they need? And if they can't improve, it's a safety issue. So Jeff, we are not apologetic at that particular point. And I will tell you that that leads us with a tiny fraction of non-responders. And that is not a good group to end with, but it is much less than what we thought about when we started this work 25 years ago. And what a journey you've been on. You came in with a hypothesis um, that there are a there are a number of repeat offenders, and if they just get the data in a non-adversarial way, many will self-correct. And after decades of this work, you've been proven true, meaning that most people will avoid being that outlier. And I can only imagine they probably start to like coming to work maybe a little bit more. Maybe, maybe the profession becomes a little bit more satisfying than it was before, maybe even a lot more satisfying than before. Jeff, my last comment, we just got through a paper with our colleagues at Stanford about burnout. And when you really look at it, when we restore that professional and help them pause and reflect on that practice and think about why they really entered practice and address some of those issues within their practice that are causing distraction, that's really a good. That's what we need to be about. But that's what occurs, you know, when professionals support each other. And I think that the one last comment I'd make is that in this career, I saw the absence of professionalism early in my training too often. It wasn't that it wasn't there, it was there, but in these critical moments. And then what we've learned now is that you can't separate out professionalism from the modern safety movement. When we think about creating safety in medicine, you gotta have intentionally designed systems to make it easy for team members to do what they need to do, but that doesn't work if those systems are not staffed by professionals who are accountable. And so if we get that right combination, we can move the boundaries of medicine forward, but we lose that when we don't think of, of ourselves as professionals. I wanna thank you for the work that you do. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm shocked that our paths haven't crossed directly before, but like I said, I feel like I've met my new best friend. Gerald, how do people get in touch with you? How do they learn more about your organization's mission? What's the website? So, you know, it's uh, at, uh, you know, and gosh, 
I'm one of those technically challenged individuals. And after all of those things, let me reach here. And you know what? I've got it. But we've got a website. We'll put it in the show notes, by the way. And if you'll put it in the show notes, I'm going to be in your debt because we right will do now, it. I, I'm and I let me remain in your debt, and I really appreciate this opportunity to uh, uh, have a conversation with one of my great colleagues. You know, it's interesting. So I'm always cautious about when people talk about the name of their website because early on, there was a, um, I guess it was a psychologist who was trying to um, put together his website, and he purchased um, therapist.com. I mean, who wouldn't want therapist.com? But unfortunately, if you parse it differently, it stands for the rapist.com. So um, who knew? You really have to just plan ahead and think about all these uh, contingencies. Look, thanks for joining us. I I hope you will come back and join us again. There's lots, lots more to talk about, in particular examples of people that have gone through these various programs. Promise me you'll come back. Jeff, I'd be honored, and I want to thank you for what you're doing about bringing an opportunity for people to sit down and listen and reflect. And that's what we ask professionals to do. Thank you for doing that. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.